Welcome to LSHTM Viral Season 3, a podcast exploring the science behind global and public health. I'm Carl Byrne. I'm Amy Thomas. I'm Naomi Stewart. And every fortnight, we'll explore the latest developments in the COVID-19 pandemic and take a deep dive into vaccines and vaccinations. There have now been over 189 million cases of COVID-19 worldwide, with over 4 million deaths. One of the hardest hit regions has been Latin America and the Caribbean. As of July 13, 2021, more than 1.3 million people have died due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The country with the highest numbers is Brazil, reporting more than 534,000 deaths. Mexico ranked second in number of deaths, with 235,000 having lost their lives. Last week, the UK reported 48,553 coronavirus infections in a single day, the largest number for exactly six months. The last time there was a higher figure was on the 15th of January. There has, however, been a huge increase in testing since then. Between the 12th of July and the 18th of July, 316,691 people had a confirmed positive test result. This shows an increase of over 40% compared to the previous seven days. Figures released on Friday by the ONS, or the Office of National Statistics, showed that 577,700 people in England were estimated to be unwell with the virus in the week ending 10th of July, or about one in every 95 people in England. The Delta variant continues to spread rapidly and has been the most common source of infection in England since the end of May. Rates of infection are rising fastest in the under 40s, especially around 16 to 24 year olds, with around one in eight reporting vaccine hesitancy, the highest for any age group. On the vaccine front, more than 3.57 billion vaccine doses have been administered worldwide, equal to 47 doses for every 100 people. There still remains large inequality to the distribution of vaccines, however. 85% of shots that have gone into arms worldwide have been administered in high and upper middle income countries, while only 0.3% of doses have been administered in the world's 29 poorest countries. In the UK, as of 14th of July, 81,438,000 vaccine doses have been administered. Out of those, people vaccinated with their first dose totaled over 46 million, while those receiving both doses was 35.3 million. Prime Minister Boris Johnson's plan to lift virtually all of England's pandemic restrictions on Monday 19th of July has been met with deep concern from international experts. At an emergency summit on Friday, government advisors in New Zealand, Israel and Italy sounded grave warnings about Downing Street's policy, while more than 1,200 scientists backed a letter to the Lancet Journal, warning that the strategy is a threat to the world and provides fertile ground for the emergence of vaccine-resistant variants. The letter said, We believe the government is embarking on a dangerous and unethical experiment, and we call on it to pause plans to abandon mitigations on July 19, 2021. Further confusion emerged on Sunday the 18th of July, when the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, announced he had COVID-19, and urged people with symptoms to take a lateral flow test. This goes against NHS guidance that state only people without symptoms should use a lateral flow test, while those with symptoms, like Javid, should get a PCR test. Subsequently, both the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Richie Sunak, were pinged by the NHS Test and Trace app, telling them to self-isolate. Number 10 initially said they would not have to isolate, as they were taking part in a pilot scheme that involved daily testing instead. This decision was reversed just two hours later, following strong criticism.
Today my guest is Beata Kampmann, who is Professor of Paediatric Infection and Immunity and Director of the Vaccine Centre here at LSHTM. Hi Beata, thank you very much for joining me again today. I've got a few questions here, so just to start off with, from July 19th in the UK, nearly all COVID-19 restrictions are to be lifted and face masks will no longer be a legal requirement, but a personal choice. Do you have any advice for people going forward on balancing freedom while also protecting themselves and other people? Well, I guess, you know, my main advice would be don't drop practices that have served as well to contain transmission, for example, such as wearing face masks in supermarkets and transport in crowded places. And, you know, why would you want to do away with something that you know that works, even if it's not the law? Would you take off your seatbelt because it's no longer required by law? And this perception of freedom is a little bit weird because we also have freedom to make sure that we don't get ourselves infected, right? Of course, yes. With that, another thing that's come up is the call again for vaccine passports, which sort of maybe goes the opposite way of freedom. So the people calling for freedom from masks, but then complaining about vaccine passports, I think their argument might be a bit weak. But looking at the vaccinations, the UK has fully vaccinated over 50% of the population. Uh, the USA isn't far behind that, and some other countries are also doing very well. But how many more need to be vaccinated to keep the people who can't get the vaccine safe? Wow, yeah, this is the famous question of how many people need to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity, which then indirectly protect others. This figure is probably around 85%, but that means to be fully vaccinated, which means two doses. And the figure is also subject to the behavior of variants and effectiveness of the different vaccines against acquisition of infection. And that varies a bit depending on the vaccine and the variant. So I think it's a bit of an evolving equation, but the bottom line is the more the better. But I think it lies somewhere around 85% with two doses. And is that 85% of the adult population or the entire population? So for now, it's really the adult population because we haven't really featured the children into this equation to the same degree as the jury is still out whether we should go down the road of vaccinating the children as well. With vaccine rollouts in high income countries versus low and middle income countries, what needs to be done to make sure everyone in the world can be vaccinated? Well, there's an incredible inequity in the access to vaccines, as you know, whilst in high income countries, in some countries, over 60 to 80% of the population are now vaccinated, like in the UK. In Africa, for example, this figure remains below 3%. And as you also know, there are a number of international efforts, such as the COVAX initiative, and donations have been pledged at the recent G7 summit. But we also know it's not yet enough. And it won't be for a while because there are issues of donations, there are issues of financing, there are issues of distribution, but most importantly, there are also issues of supply. And the priority should really be to get at least vaccines to the most vulnerable people in each country. And that includes healthcare workers and carers in order to protect those most vulnerable people. And we have managed to go way beyond this in the UK, for example. But this isn't the case throughout the world, and more effort and money and vaccine manufacturing capacity is needed, and that is really urgent now. A moment ago, you mentioned the way that different variants can react, and at the minute, most people will have heard of the Delta variant and how it's taken the, the lead in a lot of countries. But how worried should we be about the new Lambda variant, and are we likely to see more variants emerge over time? So the Lambda variant is a variant recently described in South America, which I believe already contributes to the majority of variants going around in countries like Peru, where it makes up over 70% of the circulating variants. I'm not a virologist, but the Lambda variant has some worrying signs, such as particular mutations in the spike protein, which might lead to higher infectivity. This is being studied uh, right now. 
And the vaccines are already getting tested in labs against this strain. And for now, it's a variant of interest, not a variant of concern. And very few cases have been seen in the UK. But it all definitely highlights the need for ongoing surveillance and swift progression of the vaccine program worldwide, as the more virus around, the more variants we will experience, as we've already seen. And while a lot of high income countries seem to be doing very well in their vaccination program, there still is a number of people who are vaccine hesitant. And one of the things they seem to say about that is that they think there's a risk in taking the vaccine. But could you say anything about the risks of COVID versus the risks of getting a vaccine? Well, by now we've lost over 4 million people to COVID-19. So this is a really known deadly infection now. It also can have long-term effects with the long COVID and we're learning ever more about this. And we don't yet really understand how many people will suffer from long COVID. So the risk benefit ratio of vaccinating versus not vaccinating falls very clearly onto the side of the benefits. And age is the main contributing factor here. There are other core in, uh, morbidities that also put you at higher risk. So it's absolutely obvious that at both the level of the individual and the level of the public in general, the benefits are much greater than the risks. And there have been some very nice graphs which put these things in proportions and they are quite accessible. So you can actually work out what is the risk towards the benefit of you taking a vaccine when you're 60, 70, 80, as opposed to 25. And what's the difference in perceived risk between taking action and not taking action when it comes to a vaccine? And why is this different? Yeah, I think this is a very important point about vaccines in general or preventive measures that we take, because getting a vaccine is administering a product to a healthy person. It's different from taking a drug if you're diseased. So it's a very active step and it has a different perception in people's minds as something that just happens to you like an infection. So I think there's a, a difference in the appreciation of the action. But I don't think it's that helpful to look at things uh, as not to take action, like not taking up the vaccine actually also causes a higher risk to the individual. And this is not really put into this equation properly, but it's a perception issue. And we need to work with people to enable them to make a positive decision and taking action both in taking up vaccines as well as taking precautions. These are both active measures. And people like the idea of freedom there is freedom to decide how best to protect yourself and your family. And getting a vaccine with a good safety record is also one way of expressing that freedom. Do you think we're more risk averse in a modern society? And would that come into play around things like the COVID-19 vaccine? I don't really know how to answer that question because people take huge risks on a daily basis by choice. So I don't think we are more risk averse, but it comes into play how we perceive our personal risk and you can see that there are age differences in vaccine uptake, for example. We see a lot more elderly people wearing masks than younger folks, for example. And we see, you know, excellent uptake of the, the vaccines in people who really feel personally jeopardized by the infection. So I think this is a quite granular discussion on a personal level. And maybe it has to do equally with trust and not just with risk. What would you consider reliable resources for information about vaccines at this time? Well, for a detailed and objective overview of the different vaccines and the, and the trial results, of course, I would highly recommend the COVID vaccine tracker that we have developed at the London School and the Vaccine Centre. 
we have summarized key results such as efficacy results and populations in which trials were done and also the immune responses. So that's really for a deep dive of people who want to compare and want to get that sort of detailed information. There are other sources of there, but you know, you give me the choice to make a plug for our tracker, so I will. We update it on a regular basis. So the most recent literature is always included. We know that social media echo chambers and preprints do not always tell the full story and neither do press releases. And if anyone's interested in that vaccine tracker, you can find the link in the description below. What would your key message for people, especially those without a background in statistics, when thinking about their own risk when it comes to getting the COVID-19 vaccine? So the first thing is uh, look at your age, look at your vaccination status and the status of those around you. Look at the stats of circulating virus in your community where you live, as this will influence the risk of exposure. And look at your activities. If you sit at home, you're much less likely to be at risk compared to being in Wembley Stadium, for example. Most of this is really common sense and the stats will only help you so much. The only stats that matter is that these vaccines have an excellent safety and efficacy record. Going forward, how can we ensure we keep on top of COVID-19? I suppose that's taking a, the, the view that we're already on top of it, which may not be the case, but what surveillance needs to be done and who should be in charge of that? Phew, this is definitely a collective effort. And I think the Office of National Statistics are doing an excellent job and their data are really key as they reflect population surveillance. And, you know, we need to look at hospital attendances and admissions and deaths, obviously, but that's the severe end of the spectrum. And we currently see a disconnect between the number of infections that are notified and cases of severe infection. And that's really thanks to the vaccination program. But we need to continue to look at these trends very, very carefully. And it's very important that they're monitored and also modeled. And testing in schools and universities, but not exclusion, is going to be important with easily availability of tests. We also need to continue to sequence the isolates. And the genomic surveillance platform is key to this endeavor. And the UK has got a very, very good setup for this. And I'd rather trust the Office of National Statistics than the politicians, to be honest. It's about data, not dates. And we've got a few questions that listeners have sent in over the past few weeks. Our first one's from Paul, who asks, their father's worried about the vaccine as he's read online that it's experimental. Is this the case and is it something to be concerned about? So, you know, to be honest, any new vaccine is experimental as long as it is in clinical trials. But once it's approved, there is a safety record and that lifts it out of the territory of an experiment. It's now a life-saving reality and the safety data are very reliably collected. So we're not subjecting the population to a large experiment at this point. And I suppose in the few cases that have emerged, very rare side effects have been spotted only after millions of people have been given the vaccine. There's been things put in place very quickly to reduce the, the risks associated with certain age groups. Absolutely. And in a sense, you know, we can be really grateful to the people who've participated in the trials to get us to the point where we know, you know, the vaccines have a reasonable safety record, but also you know, after you give it to millions of people, stuff will come up that is not anticipated. And therefore, it's really important to have decent surveillance. And uh, we have done really well there. And of course, you know, things get picked up. But I think rather than fear, that should instill trust in people because we have a system to pick this up, investigate, and then draw the consequences. And that's what determines some changes in the recommendations. So I, I must say, I, I've been very impressed with that system. And I I don't think we should put it down as an experiment. I think we should put it down as really reliable surveillance. And is this surveillance common with other vaccines which have maybe taken 
a longer time to develop? Does the surveillance go on after people are starting to be given the vaccine? Oh, absolutely. So uh, there is a what we call the phase four. We have what's called the yellow card system in the US as vaccine associated adverse event reporting. Um, we are very privileged in high income countries or, you know, maybe that's the way it should actually be everywhere in the world. And sadly, that's not necessarily the case because these systems are hard to set up and hard to maintain. But we have a group of experts that look at reports of adverse events associated with vaccination. The majority of them might not even have a causal link. And it's very important to distinguish between something that comes up at the same time as someone might have had a vaccine, for example, crossing the road being knocked over by a bus, you wouldn't say that that would be caused by the vaccine, would you? Yeah, that's a really important point. Just because two things happen close together in time does not necessarily mean that there's a link between those two things. Our second question comes from Severine, who would like to know if the vaccine is suitable for someone who's pregnant or who thinks they might be pregnant. Yeah, and the vaccines are recommended to be given at the same time as any woman who is not pregnant would receive their COVID vaccine. So the recommendations vary a little bit by country and more and more it's obvious that pregnancy is also a risk factor for more severe outcome and hence it's a good idea to have it. I mean, what we have to say is that the absolute majority of pregnant women will do absolutely fine even if they get COVID and that's a really reassuring message as will their babies and later on their children because they're in an age group where this doesn't really cause severe disease unless there are other factors. But we have seen that some women are more likely to deliver a little bit prematurely. And on balance, it is recommended because the protection to both the mother and with the antibody, maybe a little bit to the baby, will be beneficial. Now, connected to this question about pregnancy is often the question about impact on fertility. And if anyone is concerned about this, there is no biological reason why there should be an impact on fertility. And there are no data to show that that is the case. Fantastic. And I've got a question from Priya, who has heard that there might be a third booster shot offered in September and wants to know why this is. So as with all vaccines, we, we will see some waning of the antibody response over time. And that's why a booster might be indicated for those who had the vaccine earlier this year. And these are primarily the elderly. The booster is nothing specific to COVID vaccines. When you think about the childhood vaccines, usually we get a booster at some point because it reminds our immune system that it has kind of seen this virus and it ups the defense mechanisms. And that's mainly the antibody levels for COVID. It's likely to be given together with a flu shot. And maybe we will have vaccines adapted to the new variants for the booster by the time this comes along, which would be very good. But essentially, the booster is a memory aid to the immune system to sort of step up the defences if uh, they see the virus again. And our final question today comes from Gemma, who would like to know what the chances are that children will get long COVID and if teenagers are going to be offered the vaccine at any point. So the data suggests that uh, SARS-CoV-2 is very, very, really fatal in young people, uh, in children and young people. And, you know, 99.995% of uh, this group with a positive test today has survived. And just to give you the latest data from the UK, which uh, were published last week, of all the deaths that have occurred in the UK, I mean, they're all tragic, 25 occurred in children, and that makes it two per million. So the benefit for the individual might not be that obvious, but the benefit for the community in order to reduce transmission is likely to be quite significant. 
the JCVI is currently thinking about this recommendation for children and young people. And the vaccines that we have in the UK are currently licensed for young people above the age of 12. But no decision has been made for their introduction into this age group because we really have to prioritize the second dose of vaccination for everyone right now who's already had their first dose. And uh, given the risk-benefit ratios, it's primarily for transmission, although, and I'll come to long COVID in a second, it is important to realize that the vaccine themselves also has a benefit for the individual, and that includes the children, of course. So long COVID is rare in children, but it can be serious, and the vaccines are probably a very good weapon to prevent it, because the majority of people, I mean, everybody would have to have had COVID infection in order to get long COVID, whether they were symptomatic at the time or not is another question because we see many children who might not have been aware or parents aware that they had COVID and then they present later with uh, the sort of equivalent of long COVID. But it is also extremely rare and it's still pretty poorly defined. And I'm not sure how certain we can be at this stage how common it is. There was some statistics on the Office of National Statistics website a couple of weeks back that had some age-related incidence data, if you want to have a deeper look at that. And it's certainly more common in the slightly older children. So nobody is suggesting at this point to vaccinate the children under the age of 12 because we don't have safety data from clinical trials um, in that age group because they are still ongoing. But between 12 and 15, and especially around secondary schools and universities, there might be an argument where there will be some protection to the children and certainly an impact on the transmission dynamics, and that might have a big impact on education. So we'll wait for the JCVI decision, which will hopefully come very soon. One final question from me. We've been in, in a pandemic now for a year and a half. If you could go back and speak to Beata a year and a half ago, what would you say about what's going to happen? And what are your views of what we're going to experience in the next year and a half? Yeah, so I remember very well being interviewed by the Panorama program in April last year, and I said this virus is here with us for a very long time. And that was very much at the beginning, but it was to me, it was always obvious that this wasn't going away. I've been concerned about the variants that we see, because that uh, eventually might lead to some form of immune evasion. And that's something we really, really need to keep an eye on and adapt the vaccines. I was surprised by the efficacy of the vaccines of this kind of first generation of COVID vaccines uh, that we've got. And that is such a fantastic asset, because imagine if we had only reached 50 to 60 percent of efficacy, the impact of the vaccination program would be very, very different, especially at times like now where we're seeing these variants uh, really spreading throughout the country. And, you know, the third bit is that uh, the equity issue is not resolved. And the fact that we have such good coverage of vaccination in the high income countries and such abysmal rollout of protection to um, vulnerable populations all across the low and middle income countries remains a huge concern. And initially it looked like that we were learning quite quickly that this wasn't going to happen, but funnily enough, it's happened again. And if there's anything positive about it, it means that the low-income countries have also woken up to the fact that they cannot be held hostage to the vaccine manufacturing, vaccine distribution in high-income countries. And we now really need to make an effort to help these initiatives to increase capacity in places where vaccines could have more self-control in the future. But that's a long-term prospect. And uh, I think we have an important role to play on that road. And I hope that there is going to be more investment and also more 
support internationally to make that happen, including from pharmaceutical companies. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, that's all the questions I have. So take care. Bye. Bye. And as I mentioned in the interview, if anyone out there is interested in the COVID-19 vaccine tracker that the Vaccine Centre at LSHTM has created, you can find a link in the description below. And you can go there and find out information about all of the vaccine candidates and the, how the trials have uh, gone over time. You can find out about the clinical trials database, the various uh, efficacy trial maps that have been going on, as well as frequently asked questions about the vaccine development process. Once again, a huge thanks to my guest, Professor Beata Kampman. If you'd like to find out more about LSHTM's COVID-19 vaccine tracker, please check the description below. We'll be back next week with another episode. And in the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with comments about previous episodes or questions you'd like to see us answer in future episodes, you can email us at comms at lshtm.ac.uk. That's comms at lshtm.ac.uk. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, leave us a review and share it with your friends, family and colleagues. Until next time, I've been Carl Byrne and you've been listening to LSHTM Viral. <laughs>